pray as we turn to God's word this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Wonderful to have you here on this holiday weekend. Thanks for braving the weather this morning. Um, it took a few weeks, but we are really beginning to feel like we're finding our way through the book of Zechariah. I don't know if you feel that way. I do. Um, thank you for those of you who have reached out, who are reading alongside of us, who are rereading some of these strange passages at home, and for telling us the ways in which you are struggling through but learning uh, through this roller coaster ride of a book, which is not well known by most of us. So as we continue through the eight visions in the first six chapters of this book, I'm realizing a value in this series that I did not necessarily anticipate or really think about until now, and it's this. Some of these images that we've already seen in visions one and eight and two and seven are so bizarre and are so strange that if we can walk away going, oh, I kind of understand what those are about, and I think I know how to apply them to my life, it gives us hope that we could read anything in Scripture, no matter how strange it is, no, no matter how, how seemingly random or arcane, and we can say, this is God's word. It's speaking. Even when we read it and we say, what in the world did I just read? God has something to say. God is speaking. We may have to work at it, but there are lessons here for all of us, and that's true of visions three and six which we're going to study this morning. If you haven't been around, I do encourage you to catch up on the podcast or on YouTube, but um, we, I'll, I'll remind you that the eight visions in these chapters uh, form what's called a chiasm. They pair off. So one goes with eight, two goes with seven, three goes with six, and they lead into four and five, and then they go back out again to reinforce the ideas, and that's why we're taking them in tandem. So we'll do three and six today. But before I get into visions three and six, uh, it's been a little while since I've done some art history. I know you've all been clamoring for that, uh, and you know I can't help myself. So here we go today. Uh, one of the most important times in art history was the last half of the 19th century in Northern Europe. Uh, it's a period of massive growth, uh, Impressionism, everybody's favorite, Expressionism, and the most significant uh, salon art shows in Paris. There's a movement that comes out of this period that I've always found fascinating, and it's called exoticism. Exoticism. Uh, basically, what exoticism is, is there was this deep hunger in European culture, particularly in Paris, for an experience of the exotic. For an experience of the exotic. It, it, was, it was sort of a, a wanderlust for a people who, um, who, who, were, who were less mobile than you and I are, who certainly were living in a world that was less hospitable to globetrotting than we have today. So what you begin to see in the art world is, is artists who are caving to the hunger of the people, and they're representing exotic places in the world. Think of this as the travel channel for the 19th century, okay? Um, so as, and we see this not just in, in painting. Uh, we see it across mediums, music, sculpture, dance, opera, um, but I want to focus on the visual arts in particular. So seeing the frenzy of the people and perhaps feeling a little bit of that uh, wanderlust themselves, Notable artists began to take efforts to capture the world and bring it back into the salons in Paris. Eugene Delacroix was one of the early adopters of exoticism. 
he was a super classically trained painter in Paris, and he longed to paint from personal experience. And so uh, capturing this idea of, of far-off places at the behest of the French government, he traveled to Morocco and to Algeria. He stayed in the guest houses at the French embassies in both places, and he painted paintings like this, which is Jewish wedding in Morocco. Uh, or one called the Convulsionists of Tangiers, and most notably, the Tiger Hunt. The Tiger Hunt. This is probably his, one of his more well-known um, paintings. And the French public, you, you might kind of yawn at this and go, okay, it's a picture of a tiger hunt. Uh, the French public ate it up. They could not believe what they were seeing. It was a portal into a reality that they could only really dream of. And wow, he really captured this. Maybe the most famous artist in the movement of exoticism was Paul Gauguin. Paul Gauguin uh, felt exoticism in such an extreme, unhealthy way that he actually left his family and sailed to Tahiti for the rest of his life. Um, he did this because he wanted to paint in freedom. He wanted to be unencumbered by the establishment in Paris, and he wanted to show the world images that they had never seen before. Though his morality is not something to be celebrated, Gauguin did quite literally change the color palette of our art world. I think there's a Gauguin slide here. One there. Yeah, there you go. So you've, you've, many of you have seen Gauguin before. Um, he's underappreciated for his Tahitian paintings, I think, two of which you can see for yourself at the Art Institute of Chicago today if you'd like to take a little field trip down there. They're on the second floor bridge between the Michigan Avenue building and the new modern wing, and they're wonderful. I'll come back to exoticism later, but it fascinates me because that movement taps into something that I think those people certainly felt, but I think we all feel as well, which is we are fascinated by where we could be. We're fascinated by where we could be. We desire to experience something new, something exciting, something exotic, something fresh. Uh, Delacroix and Gauguin stand out in this movement because they went to these places. They were authoritative. They had been to these places. They painted them. They captured a vision, and they gave it back to a people to show them that there is this wide world for them, and they can experience in small ways in a gallery in France, right where they are, this wide world, or maybe even someday they could get on a ship and see the reality of those places themselves. I want you to think of the prophet Zechariah as a Delacroix or a more morally upright version of Gauguin, um, because what he does is he sees a vision, he sees a vision uh, uh, that, that the people couldn't even imagine, that they couldn't see themselves, images that they deeply longed for, and he brings those visions to them like a great painter. Visions three and six are visions of what the people wanted to see more than anything else, a vision of the new city of Jerusalem, a vision of the new city of Jerusalem. Not the Jerusalem that they were currently looking at, which was a city in ruins, a temple that was destroyed, and, the, and walls that had been broken down. But a vision of the Jerusalem of the future. One that was going to delight and instruct the people of God. So as we've done for a couple weeks now, we're going to read both visions, uh, visions three and vision six, mindful of the fact that these are a bit strange. We know that. Um, they're difficult to understand when you first read them, so they require us to listen really well and to begin to sort of create a visual in our minds as we do so. So as you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to start with vision number three, which is from Zechariah 2, verses 1 through 5. I looked up, and I saw a man 
with a measuring line in his hand. And then I asked, where are you going? He answered me to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide and long it is. Then the angel who spoke with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run and say to that man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited like unwalled villages because of the multitude of people and animals in it. For I will be a wall of fire around it, says the Lord, and I will be the glory within it. Okay, and then vision number six which is from Zechariah 5, verses 1 through 4. Again, I looked up and I saw a flying scroll. And the angel said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width is 10 cubits. And then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the whole face of the land. For everyone who has stolen as it is forbidden on one side has gone unpunished. And everyone who has sworn falsely as is forbidden on the other side has gone unpunished. I have sent it out, says the Lord of hosts. And it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name. And it shall abide in that house and consume it, both timber and stones. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's one of those where you go, thanks be to God? Okay, thanks be to God. Yes, thanks be to God. Okay, last week, uh, just like last week, this is a lot. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take these visions one by one, and I promise uh, we will understand these visions better. Uh, and then we're going to move to application. So vision number three, the man with the measuring line. Um, you can think of, a, of, of something like this. You could also think of like one of those surveyors that you see out uh, on city streets. Um, here today, it's a similar kind of job. This man, what he's doing is he's defining property lines. And he tells Zechariah that he intends to measure the length and the width of the city of Jerusalem. Why would he do that? Well, presumably so that he, they can erect walls and fortify the city. They're probably for walls. Walls were a sign of strength. Some of you remember when we went through the book of Nehemiah, we talked a lot about walls. Walls were a sign of strength, a sign of permanence, a safeguard against enemies. But then an angel, these two angels come and they rebuke the surveyor for this, this young man. They say, listen, even if you built walls, they wouldn't be able to contain all the people and the livestock inside. And God himself is going to build a different kind of wall, not one of stone, but one of fire. And his glory is going to reside in the center of that city. This is not a picture of a city on fire. That's a picture of, of God's fire uh, surrounding and protecting that city and his glory within it. This calls back to the time of Exodus, when God's glory led the people into the promised land with what? A pillar of fire and smoke. This is a vision for the people when they received it that was so exotic and so attractive and so alluring that it would have been almost too good to be true. This is a vision of what Jerusalem is going to be. It's going to be incredibly, ridiculously, lavishly, lavishly, immeasurably prosperous. That's what it means when it says it's teeming with people and animals. And it's going to be this prosperous precisely because God is going to put his protection around the city and his glory within the city. This is an incredibly hopeful message in the midst of serious hardship for the people of God, more than they could have ever asked. 
So that's vision three. Now to vision six. Another vision of Jerusalem, the holy city. This is a vision of a flying scroll. And this flying scroll has three unique features to it. First of all, it's a flying scroll. Scrolls don't normally fly, right? So that's the first one. It's suspended over the city of Jerusalem. Typically, scrolls and visions are in people's hands. They're in the hands of a human, and they're reading it, but not here. It hovers over the city. Why? Why does it hover over the city? Well, the text doesn't really tell us for sure why it is suspended over the city, but I think that it symbolizes the authority that whatever it is, the words that are on that scroll, the authority that those words have over the people in that city. And the fact that the people have access to that content. How do they have access to the content of whatever's on those scrolls? They just have to look up. It's there. It's above them. Second unique thing about these scrolls is that there's writing on both sides. Um, scrolls typically are not written on both sides. They're only written on one side. The fact that it has two distinct sides and it's noted uh, in, in the scripture that there are two sides is a surefire callback to the tablets of the law that were given at Mount Sinai because those were etched in stone on both sides of those tablets. Uh, this is not a normal scroll. Okay, This is not just um, some random words placed together. This is the covenant. This is the law. This is the, the basis of relationship between God and his people that's written on this scroll. So we know the contents of the scroll. I'm, I'm super confident of that. It's the covenant law from the Torah. And then the third unique thing about this scroll is it is much larger than a typical scroll. Um, there's some opinion about the dimensions, but they're about 30 by 15 feet. That's a very, very large scroll, much larger than normal. Uh, why, what does it mean? Why, why does it matter that it's a large scroll? Again, the text is not super clear on, on why that's significant, but I think it's to underline the accessibility and the universality of the scroll. It is there for everybody to see. It's in large print, if you will, and no one can plead ignorance as it hovers over them. They can't say, oh, I guess I didn't see that. It's hovering over you. So there's, there's quite a bit of talk in here about curses and transgressions and punishments for people who steal in this passage. I don't want you to be scared away by that because the message here is really, really clear. There are consequences. There have always been, since God gave the law, there's consequences when the people of God don't follow his law. Misdeeds are going to be accounted for because this city is covered with the covenant agreement, the law between God and his people. They're under that. This is scripture, and it's intended to be covering over the city of Jerusalem. And it's supposed to anchor the people in there with the guiding principles of what life should look like in that city. Okay, so those are the visions. Everybody still with me? Ish? Okay. Let's put them together. What we get when we put them together is we get one complete view of this new Jerusalem, the city that God is intending for his people. It is a city of great prosperity and blessing filled with glory and the presence of God himself. It's protected from enemies. It's a place of incredible goodness where the people experience the grace and the glory of God and he dwells with his people. Sounds pretty nice, right? But what covers that new Jerusalem is the people heeding the holy scriptures of God, anchoring their lives in covenant relationship with God. If they're not going to live under the authority and the covering of his word, if they're not going to be mindful of their covenant relationship with him, then the whole city is liable to be in ruins again very quickly. That covenant relationship is what governs their life together. Or else that holy city with the glory of God in the center of it, that's not possible because God doesn't leave disobedience alone. He has to correct it. So this is the vision that Zechariah gives for his people. The angel shows him this reality 
very clearly, and like Delacroix or Gauguin, he paints a compelling picture for the people. A faithful, colorful depiction of the new Jerusalem and what's to come. So, what's the application for us today as we read it? We're not in Jerusalem. We're not rebuilding a city that's left in ruins, thank goodness. So what are we to read into these visions? How do we understand them? What is God saying to his church today? Um, there's tons of good takeaways from, this, from these visions. I don't have time to go through all of them. But some of them, if you'd, like to, if you'd like to hear them, are God has a great plan for us. A reality that we can hardly imagine if we tried. And he has the authority to show it to us because he's been there. He's seen it. He knows all things. It's a great future. And his presence is at the center of it. And his word is covering us. I think there's hope too, particularly for those of you who feel like you're picking up the rubble of your life in some way. There's a lot of hope in these visions. But I have one application that God keeps shouting at me as as I'm going through this passage. And to get to that application, let me introduce you to one more prominent artist in the exoticism movement in Paris. Uh, His name is Henri Rousseau. Henri Rousseau. Um, He was a second career artist. He really didn't start painting seriously until he was 46 years old and he retired as a toll collector. Um, When he started painting, exoticism was rampant. It was like the big fad in Paris. It was at its absolute peak with artists bringing back canvases from all over the world. Uh, Rousseau um, was interested in this too, interested in far off places. This is his um, surprise tiger in a tropical storm. Surprise tiger in a tropical storm. It's from 1891. Uh, He became known for paintings exactly like this one, uh, various jungle scenes, um, and they're regarded pretty well for their technical skill and their distinct palettes. Uh, If you see them in a gallery, they kind of stand out. Uh, You can view this one, uh, not the next one, at the Art Institute of Chicago today if you would like to. It's called uh, The Waterfall. It's one of the last paintings that Rousseau ever painted, and it depicts native people in Africa, animals, and plants. I bring him up to you because I have a confession, and that is Henri Rousseau is one of my least favorite artists of this period and almost any period. Let me tell you why. Um, His is the art of that particular period that I think has aged the absolute worst by a mile. Um, And here's why. Unlike Delacroix or Gauguin, Rousseau never traveled to an African jungle. In fact, he never left France. He barely left Paris his entire life. Um, He painted his animals in these paintings based off illustrations from children's books and an occasional visit to a taxidermy gallery where he could at least see the head of an animal. Uh, He created the scenes that he painted like this one, which you can see in the Art Institute of Chicago, by arranging houseplants in his apartment in Montparnasse. He had absolutely no knowledge of African plants at all. Most of those are not native to Africa. Um, He would occasionally stroll in the botanical gardens of Paris to try and get some inspiration, but these are his houseplants in his house. Uh, He was totally and completely guessing on what a jungle in Africa looked like, completely guessing. Nothing about his depictions of these exotic places were anchored in any sort of reality whatsoever. Some find his work in this to be sort of genius, like it's some whimsical sort of meta-commentary on exoticism, I'll confess that I find them to be extremely unconvincing, static, and inauthentic. Respectfully, of course. Um, but I share this, and I share these, these paintings that I don't like very much, to get to the application that I think that we all need to hear today. And it's this. 
when we're not covered in God's reality, we shouldn't be surprised, we shouldn't be surprised when we don't experience his presence, his power, and his glory. I find that so many of us in suburban America, 2023, have this deep desire for communion with God. I see that in each and every one of you, this deep desire for relationship with God, for communion with God, to be with him, to be in his presence, to know him, to worship him, to experience abundance and favor in him, to live in that new Jerusalem vision from vision number three. But despite that desire, we fail so often to recognize that there needs to be a covering over that. That there's an anchor to that desired reality. And that's God's word in relationship with him. We fail to look up and see the flying scroll and to be reminded that life in this exotic, colorful, exciting reality has to be covered by God's word in a commitment to deep covenant relationship with him. We want to live in that holy city with God but we so often do not want to commit ourselves to living under the covering of his word, the covering of that relational commitment to God. We have this deep desire to experience the good and the holy and the exciting, but our vision of what that looks like is not based in reality because we're not deep enough in God's word. It's not tethered to anything concrete. And then we find ourselves discouraged that we're not where we want to be in our relationship with God, in our relationship to our neighbor, in relationship to ourselves. That is our unhealthy version of exoticism, spiritual exoticism. We're trying to live in a world when we don't even know what it looks like. We're rearranging our ferns and our ficus trees, and we're saying, yeah, that's probably close enough. And we end up with a vision for life with God that is well-intentioned enough, but it is unconvincing, it is static, and it's inauthentic. But when we take that desire to know and be known by Jesus and to live into the future that he has for us, when we accept the covering of God's word and we commit ourselves deeply to covenant relationship with him, when we're constantly aware of the two-sided scroll that's hovering over us, then we're anchored in God's reality. It's like we're on the boat and we're, we're dropped off in the jungle and we see things that, that we couldn't have imagined and things become clear to us and we see things as they truly are. That's Zechariah's word. If you want this exciting, compelling, wonderful future, then anchor your lives in relationship with God and cover your existence in his word. So how do we do this? Three really simple things, but they're a lifelong commitment for us. First is, don't forget your commitment to God or his commitment to you. These people of Israel had to be reminded of the agreement that they made long ago at Sinai with God as they're rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. And we need to do the same each and every day. We need to start each and every day by renewing that commitment and fervently seeking to please and to honor God. Second, we have to let the word of God cover our lives. Spend time in God's word every day. If I don't say that enough, I'm sorry. We should say it every week. Spend time in God's word each and every day because that reminds us of his character and his goodness. And it allows us to, to anchor, our his, anchor ourselves in his perception of, of, of the world in our lives. Without daily time in God's word, we are subject to the limits of our imagination. We start 
staring at our houseplants, assuming that that must be a real jungle. But with scripture, it widens our view. It describes the exotic and beautiful kingdom of God. And with scriptures covering, our rebuilding efforts are not futile, but possible. Third, we rest in the hope that life with God leads to more than we could ever have. Hope is something that we actively need. I'm sure that the Israelites of Zechariah's time had a hard time seeing beyond the rubble of the city that they kept having to step over and stubbing their toes on. And God gives them this gift of a vision from Zechariah. It's creative. It's evocative. It's very, very hopeful. A future of this city teeming with life and God's glory fully centered, all protected by his power. Friends, if we remain committed to his word, our future is just as amazing and compelling as this. And that's a word of hope for us. Spoiler alert, the temple was rebuilt, as were the walls. Jerusalem would again and again become a city that is teeming with people and animals. If you go there today, you would agree with that. But it did not and still has not matched the vision that has been given by Zechariah. But a little over five centuries after this vision was initially given, there was a man who was sitting in those temple courts. He would say to those around him, destroy this temple, bring it down to rubble, and I'll build it again in three days. And the people ridiculed him. Do you have any idea how long it took for our ancestors to build this temple? And I'm sure that if people from Zechariah's time would have heard those words, they would have scoffed at this man as well. But this man, whose name was Jesus, said, I'm not talking about a physical temple. I'm talking about my body. Through my death and my resurrection, I'm going to make a new way for covenant relationship with God. I am going to be the living word that hovers and covers over your life. My glory will not be at the center of a physical city, but at the center of each and every human heart who receives me. I will bless you. I will protect you. The fire of my glory will protect you. You see, Zechariah's visions, all of them, point to Jesus Christ of Nazareth because he is the ultimate anchor to God's reality. He covers our lives and leads us to blessing and favor that is completely immeasurable that we can never imagine up on our own or ever hope to even ask for. He is God's reality for us. He's the beautiful land that we long for. And he is our hope. We're going to celebrate Jesus as we go to the table for communion this morning. As we head to the table, I'm going to invite you to join me in this responsive prayer, which will lead us to the table. I'll have you respond in the bold print. Oh God, we commit ourselves again to you. Infuse us with a vision of life with you. that shows us who you are and who we are. God, may we experience your glory and favor. We give thanks for Jesus who makes this all possible. 
may this vision guide us.